Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. This is Corey. You're listening to the third episode of Breaking Down Collapse, a podcast in which we try and take the complex issue of collapse and break it down in a way that makes it a little more simple. And if I can interject here, I'm curious. You've talked about the collapse community and you talk about being collapse aware. Yeah. And I'm wondering, like, when do I get my certificate? <laughs> at, at what point in this process is there some sort of an initiation? How do I become a member of the collapse community. When am I collapse aware? First of all, are you on Reddit yet? No. Okay. So get a Reddit account. That's a good place to start. And I think secondly, when I hear you say the phrase, eat the rich in a natural course of conversation for the first time, that's when I'll know you've made it. <laughs> are you talking about literally eating rich people? Yeah. Like you get hungry and so you're going to cannibalize by eating the wealthy. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I don't want to be part of the class community. <laughs> we'll get you there. That's what I'm saying. You, we, you're not ready yet. You're not to that point. So <laughs> once you get there, we'll bring that up again. Well, when it comes to the collapse community, and, and I know you've mentioned part of the reason for this podcast is so that people can learn how to share the idea of collapse with others, which is what you're doing with me. Yeah. And even just these first couple of conversations that we've had, I find myself wanting to talk about this with other people. Yeah. Like at family events, I'm trying to find the right way to bring it up <laughs> without sounding like a crazy person. It's not easy to do. Yeah. And I don't know if it's just a matter of saying like, 
hey, have you ever taken the time to think about how fragile our society is <laughs> and the fact that it could all come crumbling down? Anyways, I'll I'll get better as I try and follow your example in figuring out how to explain it to others. But let me just make sure I understand correctly what we've gone over so far. So collapse is when things go from being complex to being more simple. And a lot of times that by nature results in a decrease in the population. And we also talked about what complexity is and how a lot of it has to do with our organization as a society. And we're fragile. We're so interdependent because there's so many little cogs in this big machine. And if one stops working, it messes the whole thing up. Precisely. Yeah. As we've built ourselves bigger and bigger, become more and more complex, essentially the greater distance we have to fall. In last episode, I left out a pretty huge part of what it means to be a complex society. And the reason being that I needed to dedicate an entire episode to it. And so that's what today is. So we're going to talk about energy and its role in getting us to where we are today and its role in potential collapse in the future. Let's do it. Let's start with this. Um, have you heard of the term energy slave before? Uh, I know what energy is and I know what a slave is. But I don't know what those two words together means. <laughs> Perfect. Well, that's actually a good way to maybe start. So we'll talk about what an energy slave is. But first, just energy in general is defined as the ability to do work. So anytime you exert energy, it's because you are doing some sort of work. And obviously, you know what a slave is and our audience up here all knows what, what a slave is. But an energy slave is essentially something that is not human doing an equivalent amount of work as an average human. So as an example... Every day, we have things that are being done for us that we're not having to do ourselves. We turn the lights on and there's light, right? We turn the stove on and we get heat. Turn the AC on and it gets cool. So that's all done by energy. And that energy is being done outside of our own bodies. And so there's a technical term for this, which is called extrasomatic energy, which essentially just means it's a type of energy that's being done not by our own, you know, the sweat of our brow. And so an energy slave is essentially the same amount of work that it would take me to do something, but it is something else that's doing that work. A really good example is to think about the gasoline in your car. You're able to just go to the gas station, put some gas in your car, and then push a pedal and you drive. They've done the math on this, and it would take 16 people working 24 hours straight for a month straight to push your car the same distance that you go with like a tank full of gas. Wow. Yeah. So I know that's kind of, that's a lot of numbers, but essentially 16 people working full time, no breaks for a month, pushing your vehicle nonstop to go the exact same distance as you can just do it by, by filling it with one tank of gas. Wow. I've never really thought about that, but that makes sense. Yeah. And it's interesting because they actually believe that at any given time throughout the day, the average Westerner has between 150 and 200 energy slaves. So the equivalent of 200 people working full-time, 24 hours a day for you so that you can have the luxuries that you have. Being able to turn your blender on or put something in your toaster, or flip the lights on, have heat in your house, that sort of thing. Pretty incredible to think that we have that much work and that much energy basically just at our disposal at any time. Yeah, totally. Like, I don't have to jump on a giant hamster wheel and run just to keep a light bulb shining. And so the fact that I can do so many things, it makes me realize just how spoiled I am. Yeah. And we take that for granted, right? Like we've grown up with that. 
But really, it's only been in the last about 150 years or so that we've started to be able to have that much energy really at our disposal. If we go way back to kind of what we talked about last week when humans were first starting to develop and we were going through all this big, um, these technological advancements and stuff. And at the beginning, we only had somatic energy. So I already mentioned what extra somatic energy was, energy used outside the body. We started with just somatic energy. So whatever we could do with our own effort. So if we needed to get somewhere, it was going to be because we worked our muscles to walk from A to B. If we were going to get food to eat, it's because we went out and collected it. We found it. We killed it. We did whatever we had to do to get that food to replenish our energy. Hold on. I've got a question. If I go back to before cars and I have a horse and I ride that horse, is that like a certain number of energy slaves or is the fact that I have to do all the agricultural work to raise hay to feed the horse part of my energy going into that? Yeah. Perfect question. So riding a horse is a form of extrasomatic energy. And so you're able to get a lot further on a horse than you could on your own two legs. And it's because you're using the energy of something else outside of yourself. And the second part of your question about like, you know, I have to put out energy in order to get that energy back. That is a super important principle to what we're about to talk about, actually, because in every case, in order to get energy, we have to spend energy. And so, yes, you're putting in a certain amount of energy, but you're also getting energy out. And in order for it to be worth it, you have to get more energy out than what you're putting in. And the same is true for all of the energy that we get today. Got it. So when it was just somatic energy that we had, we had to find ways to like conserve that. So eventually, you know, we did things like built fires to keep ourselves warm. We constructed clothing to keep ourselves warm because when you shiver, you're giving off too much energy. We created better weapons so that we were able to hunt more efficiently and not have to expend so much energy. And so every technological advancement that we made, we improved our ability to use our own energy. But when it came to things like fire, that was actually probably the first form of extrasomatic energy that we started using because we could take wood, we could build a fire with it, and then we could do things with that fire, like harden a wooden spear so that we could use it better as a weapon or... Um, like I mentioned, keep ourselves warm. We could use it to fend off animals or create light. And then you mentioned animals. So we started using animals to transport ourselves, to improve our efficiency with agriculture. So we use like oxen to till, um, and we also used it to transport goods as well. So with each new technological advancement, we found better ways of using energy. Until in the 1700s, we discovered the steam engine, right? And that was our first I think, real big leap in extrasomatic energy that really gave us an upper hand. And that was through the burning of coal. And so when coal started to be burned, we started to be able to move large amounts of things over land and over water through their steam engines in, in like ferries um, and on trains. And then eventually with the discovery of, of oil and gas, that was really what allowed us to get where we are today. Without fossil fuels, we just simply could not be anywhere near the level of complexity and population that we've discovered today. So while last episode we talked about how complex we are and our levels of population and how vulnerable that makes us, fossil fuels are really what keep us afloat. And without them, we would inevitably have to simplify and go back to a simpler state. So you're talking about fossil fuels. When I think of fossil fuels, I think of like gasoline to drive my car. Yeah. But when I think of energy, I primarily think of electricity. So I might be naive to exactly all the sources that we get our electricity, but does that come into play here? Yeah. So electricity is derived from fossil fuels primarily as well. 
well over half of the electricity that we get comes from fossil fuel energy. And fossil fuels actually make up about 80% of total global energy consumption. And oil by itself makes up over a third of that total. So it's pretty crazy to think that one single fossil fuel powers over a third of our society and four-fifths of everything is done by fossil fuels. Oil is actually used in way more than just gasoline, which I think is what most people equate oil to. It's also used in jet fuel, which uses a ton. Every step along the agricultural process uses it, from like synthetic fertilizers to the tractors and heavy machinery required. To Even like distribution, like we talked about last time. Exactly. Yep. Distribution, manufacturing, the retail settings. So there's tons of energy slaves that are used to create our food. Our roads are made from petroleum products, rooftops, plastics. I mean, think about how much plastic there is in the world. That mostly comes from oil, computers, phones. So to sum up what you're saying, our way of living is pretty much entirely dependent on oil. Yeah, so coal and natural gas also play a huge part. But oil is kind of the number one biggest energy source. So there are a few problems with fossil fuels. And most people know them because you hear about it in the news and, and things. But I think it's important to break these down. So the three are that, number one, they're finite. They're not renewable. There's a certain amount of oil on Earth. There's a certain amount of natural gas. There's a certain amount of coal. And once it's gone, it cannot be regenerated in a timescale that makes sense to humans. It took millions of years to generate the amount of those fossil fuels that we have available to us now. The second is that they damage the environment. So pretty much everything we hear about rapid human-caused climate change comes from the burning of fossil fuels. And third, and this is the one that maybe a lot of people don't know about, is that finding, extracting, and processing fossil fuels becomes increasingly difficult and costly the further along we get. So I, I want to hear more about that, but I do want to just interject and say that I personally recognize that it's not easy to just flip a switch and start using some other form of energy. But I think a lot of people see the advances that are being made in like electric vehicles and solar power, and they think, hey, we're on our way out of using fossil fuels. Yeah, that's a great point. And a ton of people have put their faith into renewables. And I think renewables are really important. However, I do think that it's incorrect to believe that renewables are going to save us, that they can completely replace fossil fuels. Really, it's it's just not possible. And a couple of the reasons are, number one, renewables require non-renewables for production. So in order to build solar panels and in order to build electric vehicles and batteries that can store energy, you have to use non-renewable sources to create them. So coal and oil both go into creation of solar panels, for example, and batteries require lithium. And they've said that of all the known reserves of lithium on Earth, we could only really produce enough batteries to power the current number of cars that are already on the road. So we wouldn't be able to build more cars that are electric. We wouldn't be able to replace the batteries on old cars without running out completely of lithium needed to, to build them. So that's one way renewables might not be the greatest. Electric, wind, things like that are intermittent. And so it would be really hard to be able to fuel the entire grid, the power grid, with just those things because the wind isn't always blowing when I need to turn on my lights, right? And during nighttime, I still need to be able to run my appliances. 
And so there has to be a way to be able to store that energy and then get that energy out when it's needed. And that is a really difficult thing to do. Most renewables that we hear about deal with the electric grid, which is super important, but they don't necessarily deal with the production of goods and manufacturing, which we talked about with plastics and phones and computers and our roads and our rooftops and all those things. There isn't so far a good replacement for petroleum and other fossil fuel products to be able to create those. All the manufacturing makes up 26% of all oil use. So even if we were able to replace all of our transportation, for example, with renewables, the manufacturing piece would still make up over 25% of oil usage. When it comes to transportation, which makes up like 70% of oil usage, with electric vehicles, we're really only talking about passenger cars. They still have not figured out a way to make a battery that can charge a semi-truck for long enough to make it economically feasible. They have come out with one that can go like 200 or 250 miles or something like that. But for a lot of the transportation industry, they got to be able to go, you know, 500 miles without having to stop and getting a charge. And that's a big part of it is that oil is just more convenient. And so maybe over time, as there are improvements and changes to renewables, it might become more feasible. But that brings us to the last part of why renewables probably aren't the solution. And it's called the Jevons Paradox. And so what the Jevons Paradox is, Jevons was actually a, an economist that kind of discovered this. And it's that as things become more efficient, we actually end up using more than we would have if we hadn't made it more efficient in the first place. And therefore, it ends up in a loss. I get that because I've heard that back in the day, people used to only wash their clothes like once a month or something like that. Yeah. And then machines were made to help people wash their clothes and they started washing their clothes more. And now we feel like if we wear the same pair of pants twice, we're not hygienic. Exactly. And imagine how much more water and energy we use to wash our clothes every single time we wear them compared to back then. Another example would be if we increase the amount of electric vehicles on the road, that would decrease the amount of demand on gasoline. And because there wouldn't be as much demand on gasoline, economics state that gasoline would become cheaper. Well, I promise you that for every person who decides to drive an electric vehicle, there's another guy who will happily now decide he can afford a Humvee and fill it with gasoline because that gasoline is so cheap. And he's going to go buy more gasoline than he would have before. Whereas maybe if he would have been encouraged to not buy so much gasoline and you bought a normal amount of gasoline, we, we could have actually used less. And it's not just a theory. It is proven. They've done tons of studies on it. And it always ends up that we end up using more when we get more efficient. So like I said, I'm not here to rain on the renewables parade. I do think they're really important. I think they have their place in helping us to decrease the amount of fossil fuels that we use and the amount of pollution that we're putting out into the environment. And hopefully there will be some social policies or laws put into place that will incentivize us to move more towards renewables and away from the fossil fuels. So going back to the three problems I mentioned with fossil fuels, we just kind of touched on that first one and explained that, that they are finite and non-renewable and perhaps we won't be able to use renewables to fix that issue. The second point, they damage the environment. We're going to do a whole episode and probably many episodes on climate change and how that is caused specifically by burning of fossil fuels. So we won't get into that crazy deep right now. But the third part is the one that I really want to talk about. So finding, extracting, and processing them becomes increasingly difficult and costly. If that sounds familiar, it's because last episode we talked about the same basic principle, but with technological advancements. I don't know if you remember when we mentioned the diminishing returns from technological advancements. So yeah, that we 
started with the low hanging fruit and now it takes a lot more resources and time and energy and money just to produce the same amount of innovation as before. That's right. So the exact same thing is true with fossil fuels. At the beginning, fossil fuels are really easy to extract, specifically oil. And then as time goes on, it actually does get more and more difficult and it costs more and more to get the resource out of the ground. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So, Kellen, you're a business guy. I'm guessing you know what ROI stands for. Yep. Return on investment. It's used in almost every business decision, whether you are an actual investor investing in a business and trying to make sure you get a big return on it, or you're a business owner and you're trying to say like, if I buy a machine for this much, I'm going to get this much out of it. Exactly. So if you put in a certain amount, you're expecting to get out more than what you put in. If you didn't, it was a bad investment. If you get more than you put in, then it was a good investment. Yep. So this goes back to exactly what we were talking about with when you asked your question about the horse. You said you had to put in your own energy to get the horse fed, keep it alive, and then you get energy out of it by being able to ride it around. The same is true. If you're not getting more energy out of your horse than you're putting into it, it was a bad energy investment. And so just like we use the term ROI for a return on investment, we also use the term EROEI, which is an energy return on energy invested. So to get energy out of something, we do have to put energy into it. And when you think about an oil well, for example, you have to build the machinery to dig down into the earth, pull that oil out. Then you have to transport that oil. You have to process that oil. Then you transport the processed oil, right? So there's a lot of energy that goes into it. Well, in the very early days of conventional oil, around 1860, when they first discovered it, it had an incredible EROEI. They only had to put one barrel's worth of oil into extracting a hundred barrels out. And that is a pretty incredible return on investment. So that meant that they had 99 barrels left over that could go into helping society grow. So you're saying early on, it was kind of like those old cartoons where they stick a spike into the ground and oil just starts spraying out. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. And that might be like a little over dramatized, but in reality, the first oil well that was found, they only had to go 21 meters down, which is relatively nothing because just recently in 2010, the Deepwater Horizon oil field, they had to go below 5,000 feet of water and then another 12,000 feet into the Earth's crust to be able to locate that oil field. And they would have only been able to produce enough oil out of that field to satisfy global demand for like 12 hours. Instead of even getting that, there was a tragic explosion that ended up causing almost 5 million barrels of oil to spill into the ocean. 
and it killed several workers on the rig. So the difference is just like crazy to me, right? And you can imagine the amount of energy that would have ha had to go into the Deepwater Horizon oil field compared to one that was only 21 meters down. So why did they even do that? When I think of like ROI, or in this case, he said E-R-O-E-I. Yep. To get just 12 hours doesn't seem like it's worth going through that much effort. Yeah. Well, if you want society to keep going the way that it is, that's the type of stuff that you have to do now. So over time, the EROEI of oil has decreased significantly. If back then it was 100, which meant that for every one barrel of oil they put into Discovery, they were able to pull out 100 barrels of oil. In the 90s, it lowered to 20. And now it's somewhere around 10 and sometimes even less for conventional oil. So that is scary to think that it is decreasing so rapidly. But at least current state, it sounds like we're not too bad. I think if for every $1 I put into an investment, I get $10 out, that still sounds pretty fantastic. Yeah, and financially speaking, that would be a really great investment. But the scary part is with oil is that it just keeps getting lower and lower and lower and lower. And oil keeps becoming harder and harder to find. We know it's finite. Right? There's only a certain amount. A comparable situation would be to say that you owe a debt to someone who keeps demanding more and more money every time, but the amount of money even available to you to earn is finite, and it's getting harder and harder for you to earn the same amount of money each time. So when demand is growing but supply is shrinking, it creates a problem. And just like it's harder to find oil over time, it also gets harder and more costly to extract oil from each individual well. So if you can imagine looking at a cross section of the earth and you can see the little oil rig on top and they've drilled down however far they need to to get to the oil at the bottom. In that pool of oil, the stuff on top is just basically floating there. And this could change depending on the type of oil and the geometry of the area. But essentially, they're going to suck out the first half of that oil well pretty easily. But there's always a decline in production in each individual oil well. And so when you multiply that by all the wells and all the fields out there, you get essentially a bell curve of increasing production, that production peaks, and then there's a decrease in production. So the question then kind of comes up, like, why is there a decrease in production? A lot of oil wells end up being abandoned with oil still being left in the well. And the reason is because it just becomes too costly that it's not economically feasible to even try and pull that oil out anymore. If the market says oil is worth this many dollars, but it's going to cost me more than that to pull it out of the well, I'm not going to bother. And so that's the worry of the EROEI decreasing over time as well, because it could potentially hit a point where it's not worth pulling the oil out of the ground anymore. Our known reserves of oil is like 1.6 trillion barrels. And that is enough to keep us going for about 47 years at our current rate. So that seems, I mean, it doesn't seem like long enough to me, but still almost 50 years of oil is quite a bit. But the problem isn't that we're going to suck up every single drop of oil out of the earth. The problem is that oil could eventually get to the point where it simply isn't economically feasible to pull it out of the ground anymore. So maybe you're going to get to this later, but the big question that is sounding in my mind as you're saying all this is like, how much time do we have left? At what point is it not worth it for us to get more oil out of the ground? Geologists and economists have been trying to answer that question for a long time. And there's two really important points to that. So the first is 
the natural way that oil peaks and declines. And we'll talk about how that's kind of happened historically. And the second part to that is that we keep finding new types of oil. They're just a lot more difficult to extract. And so I'm going to touch on both of those things here for a minute so that they make sense. So in the early 1900s, we were discovering a ton of oil fields. It was like everywhere we looked, we were finding more oil. And it was way more oil than we were using. But by about the year 1930, that actually started to decline. So we started to find less and less oil fields. And there wasn't a huge panic about it because there was so much there and we were using relatively little. But there was a man by the name of Marion King Hubbard who predicted that a certain amount of time after the discovery of oil, we would also peak in the amount we were able to produce. So just because we've discovered oil and we know it's there doesn't mean we've actually pulled it out, produced it, processed it in a way that it can be sold. We just know that it's there. And he said that 40 years after that peak in the discoveries in the 30s, he said that by 1970s, we were going to have trouble being able to pull enough out of the ground to be able to keep up with the demand in the U.S. And the reason for that was because of the declining EROEI. As we started to hit the, the bottom half of each of those oil fields, for example, it just got harder and harder to pull it out of the ground. And so he was right. By 1970, we were struggling to be able to produce enough oil to keep up with the demand of oil in the United States. And that forced us to have to look to other countries for our oil. And in 1973 and in 1979, there were two big oil shocks, essentially where the U.S. was not able to import enough oil to keep up with demand, and prices shot through the roof. And the reason for us not having enough oil was that there were problems in the Middle East, They were mad at us. They did an embargo where they essentially said, we're not sending you more oil. And it caused people to panic. People were waiting in line for hours to get gasoline. Some couldn't get it. It caused food prices to increase. Economic recessions came from this. It was a really big deal. And it was all just because the U.S. was no longer independent on its own ability to produce oil at a fast enough rate. Now, we were lucky that we were still able to get oil from other places But you can imagine the problem that would come up if that same thing happened, not on a national scale, but on a global scale. If suddenly the world was not able to produce enough oil to be able to keep up with the demand. So this comes to your question about like, when? When is this supposed to happen? Well, according to Hubbard's theory, if production would peak 40 years after the peak of discoveries, well, globally, there was a peak in conventional oil discoveries in the 60s which meant that in the early 2000s, we probably would have peaked with our ability to produce oil. And that actually is what happened. In 2006, global conventional oil did peak. And so we kind of hit the very top of that peak and we've slowly been coming down. Now that should have created a lot of problems. It should have been like, you know, we're not able to meet oil demand. Prices should be going through the roof. But like I mentioned, the second part of this is that we discovered what's called unconventional oil. It's a different kind of oil that is much more difficult to extract, much more costly, but we've been able to use that as kind of a band-aid for the situation to make sure that there has been enough oil to fulfill our needs. Have you heard of like shale oil or tar sands before? I've heard of shale, but I don't know anything about it. So this is literally just like the last 10 years. The EROEI is terrible. We're talking like anywhere between like 1.5 and six in most cases. So compared to, you know, the past and even conventional oil now, it's really not very good. And as a matter of fact, 
I'm fairly confident that every shale oil company in the U.S. is in debt. It hasn't turned a profit yet because really economically, it's just not that feasible, but it is necessary. And so they are fracking and they're extracting all these different more crude types of oil that they can then try and do a bunch of work to to make it resemble petroleum so that we can continue to function as we are. Now, one really interesting thing is that there, just in the last several months, there have actually been some articles I've read about shale company CEOs who have said they personally believe that shale oil has now peaked. One of them basically said, in my lifetime, I don't think I will ever again see us pump this much shale oil. So to answer your question, there's not really a definite time when we could see the peak of oil production, but all the signs point that it could be any time in the next 10, 20, or 30 years. What you're describing sounds terrifying. Like the fact that we are just scrambling to try and scrape together enough conventional oil and even unconventional oil just to meet our demand seems like we should all be panicking. Why Why aren't more people talking about this? Or, or am I just not hearing it? So peak oil has been a theory for a long time. And we talked about a little bit in the first episode how people tend to be really optimistic. On the subreddit, we call it hopium. Basically, it's because you're addicted to hope instead of opium. It's hope. And so we kind of feel like people are just filled with this desire to believe that everything's going to be okay. And so not only do they kind of turn away from it when it's brought up, but they will look for anyone who's willing to negate that it's real. And so you'll find articles out there about like peak oil is a myth and, and you know, it's not real. We have enough oil for, to last us forever, but just because you want something to be true, doesn't make it true. The other reason is, is that there is so much money in oil and there is so much money in the economy doing well that nobody wants to cause a panic about this. You're not going to hear someone running on a political platform of getting the word out there about how screwed we would be if peak oil happened. That's not going to win them the presidency, right? That's not going to win them the spot. And so instead, they talk about economic growth. We're going to continue to increase shareholder value by making stocks go up, right? And that's what everyone cares about because if their jobs are going well and there's money coming in, then they get to continue their crazy lifestyles that they live. And the thought or idea of the economy worsening is just something they're going to shove aside and they're not going to listen to. So we've talked about how dependent we are on oil. And I think of some of these countries, especially Middle Eastern countries, that their whole economy exists because of the oil that they're producing for the rest of the world. And so are they are these governments panicking like are they are they just biding their time like hey we're just going to live this up as long as we can but once we run out we're totally screwed yeah i think they have to be like you think of like the sort of the st the stereotypical like you know saudi arabian prince or king who's just like living it up with his lamborghinis and stuff on the oil money and i think that's true these countries the, there's so much disparity within their own countries right that the higher ups, they're living on oil money and they're going to milk it for everything that it's worth in the hopes that either we don't run out of oil because that would ruin their lifestyle or even that we don't get to a point where renewables could potentially replace oil because that would have the same effect. And critics of peak oil believe that either A, we have enough oil to last us forever, which is completely false, or they're putting their faith in 
the renewable side of things. And this is where it gets really interesting because like I said, I think renewables have their place. And even if we could get to a point where renewables replaced fossil fuels, we're not out of hot water. And if that were to happen, if renewables were able to replace fossil fuels enough, then we could see a peak in oil production, but it wouldn't be because we weren't able to produce anymore. It would be because we didn't need it anymore, right? And so a lot of the critics will say, well, don't worry, we're going to get to a point where oil just isn't going to be that important. We're going to peak in demand. We're not going to peak in supply. So even if that were true, the outcome is still, we have enough fossil fuels to do irreparable damage to the planet through climate change, through pollution, or through ecological disasters, which by the way, right now, like we're in the middle of this big, like kind of mass extinction event. They think that in the next decade, we could lose up to a million species that are critical to our survival. And so even if we're never going to run out of fossil fuels, we have plenty left to use to dig ourselves into a deep enough hole that we won't be able to climb out of. Even if we said we could replace fossil fuels with renewables and we could kind of put like a lid on climate change and reverse that, is it possible for us to continue growing at the rate that we're growing? And this is what we're going to talk about next episode, that there are limits to our growth, even if you set aside the need for energy and even if you set aside the damage that fossil fuels do to our environment. In reality, in my opinion, a quicker collapse due to peak oil would actually be merciful because it would mean that we could potentially avert a lot of the damage that we're doing to the environment, which for a future humanity who's going to try and kind of pick up the pieces of our broken society and move on, they could still have a planet to inhabit. Whereas if we go too long and if we keep burning through fossil fuels, we're going to damage that to a point where it can't be inhabited in the future. It's going to be much harder for people to get by, even after our collapse. So next week, we'll talk about how this whole energy issue plays into the bigger picture of collapse. It doesn't have to be that peak oil or peak energy actually causes our collapse. It's just the fact that ERVI is decreasing at such a rate and new energy is becoming so much more and more difficult to produce that that's going to play into what we talk about a lot next week. That episode is going to be titled Overshoot. So we'll talk about what overshoot is. I'm going to introduce something called catabolic collapse, which basically just means that we eat ourselves alive from the inside out. And we're going to discuss a book called Limits to Growth, which was based on computer modeling done by MIT, which basically just modeled out what's going to happen to society during this coming century. And it's fascinating. So essentially, you're telling me that we're going to talk about more and more reasons why we're totally screwed. <laughs> that's, that's it. Yeah, essentially, that's it. You know, we've talked about some potentials of collapse and things that could maybe cause it. But next episode, we're going to tie all those things into why it's going to happen. I told you in the first episode, I don't think we can get out of this. And you said, well, that kind of shoots up a red flag for me. makes me feel like this is all kind of conspiratorial. And next episode, by the end, I'm hoping that you'll be able to see this is not a conspiracy. And holy crap, he was right. This is going to happen. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, I guess I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. To the conversation, probably not to the actual happening of the event. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. All right, we'll talk next week.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.